0: Welcome to The Reeves' Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. And today, I'm going to talk about something I find very interesting indeed. Have you ever wondered about places where you sense a presence, a feeling that there's something just out of the corner of your eye? Have you ever thought that there might be something inhabiting certain areas of the forest that you only see at night? And, are there things that were like us, and were here before us, and now seem to have gone? Maybe. That's right. In this episode, we're going to talk about the elves in medieval belief. But first, we need some notes on a term. The words elf and fairy are more or less interchangeable. Elf is a Germanic word, so you'll see it used by people who spoke Germanic languages like Old and Middle English... Old Norse, and Old and Middle German. Fairy comes from the Latin fatum, and some variant of that would be used by speakers of Romance languages, those languages ultimately derived from Latin. Since most writing was in Latin, you'll usually see the word fatum, which one can translate as elf or fairy. Sometimes Latin writers would use words like faun or dryad. The ancient Greek terms for minor spirits of the countryside, when they clearly meant these beings. But in general, whether the English elf, the German alp, or the French fairy, they basically have the same meaning. As for me, I'm going to go with elf, since I'm a big old Tolkien nerd. The first thing to note is that belief in elves was widespread in the Middle Ages. In her 1431 deposition for her heresy trial, Joan of Arc testifies that in her hometown of Domremy, there was an elves' tree, that people believed that if they came and drank the water from a nearby spring, they could be healed of their sickness. She says that others of her hometown claimed to have seen elves there, but that she had not. So I want you folks to pay attention here. Note that we have this association of elves and healing. And we'll see this elsewhere. In the 13th century, the Dominican friar Etienne de Bourbon tells us of a remote village in the French countryside whose peasants had a peculiar ritual for sickly children. This story, by the way, is related to Guinfort, the dog saint whom I'll eventually devote a whole episode to. Anyway, they'd take their children to a clearing in the forest where they'd strip the child naked and toss it back and forth nine times between the forks in the trunks of two trees. They'd make invocations to what Etienne calls fawns, and then set a child between two candles and leave the child unattended. Why would they do so? Well, they believed that the sickly child was a changeling, That is, the actual child had been snatched by the elves and switched out with an elvish imposter. They hoped that if they'd done this ritual and done it right, they'd get their original child back. So, what precisely is going on here? I think we need to do a bit of a dive into how medieval people perceived elves. As C.S. Lewis noted in his book The Discarded Image nearly three-quarters of a century ago, Elves were fundamentally beings that didn't quite fit into a neat, systematic understanding of the world. In medieval thought, you had the Earth at the center of the universe, orbited by the planets and sun, and you had God presiding over a universe whose rational beings were humans, angels, and demons. And maybe something else. You see... While learned churchmen wrote of a neatly organized cosmos that fit in with Christianity, most medieval people had beliefs that, well, didn't always fit. And belief in elves was a big part of that. A key thing is that the elves were rational beings, sort of, but they didn't quite fit in, either in terms of time or in terms of space. What do I mean here? Well... It's time for two stories. Here's a story from the late 12th century chronicler William of Newburgh, discussing an event in Yorkshire, and I quote, A certain peasant from this region went to go visit his friend in a nearby area, and, having remained there a long time, set off to return home late at night when he was somewhat less than sober. And behold, from a nearby barrow which I've often seen, it's about a quarter of a mile from the village, he heard the voices of people singing as if in a festival. Wondering who might be breaking out with such joyful celebrations in the dead of night, he went to have a look, and, seeing a door in the side of the barrow, he approached and looked in. He saw a broad, bright hall, full of men and women lying down as if to a solemn feast. One of the attendants at the feast saw him standing at the door, and brought him a cup. He accepted it, but wisely knew not to drink from it. Having poured out the contents but retained the cup, he left. With the theft of the drinking vessel, the feasting crowd erupted into a tumult and pursued him, but thanks to the speed of his horse, he escaped and returned to his village with the wondrous thing as his spoil. At length, this cup, being of an unknown material, an unusual color, and an unfamiliar shape, was offered to King Henry I of England for a great gift, and then it was offered to the queen's brother David, the king of Scotland, and it was kept for many years in the Scottish treasury. A few years ago, King William of Scotland gave it to Henry the second, who greatly desired to see it. This and things like it would appear incredible if their reality were not supported by trustworthy witnesses. Notice how this peasant encounters the elves, it's accidental. When you accidentally encounter the elves, it's usually at some sort of feast that has a feel to it that's both incredibly sumptuous, but also vaguely unreal, like a dream you're about to wake from. You would encounter elves at night, or in the woods, or some time or place removed from everyday experience. And where does our peasant encounter this feast? In a barrow. Barrows were old Bronze Age and even Stone Age tombs that were unspeakably ancient even by the time of the Middle Ages. This made them tokens of a distant past. Elves would often be associated with a barrow as the barrow itself was a token of something long gone. Note what else we have. This elven feast is underground. You would find the elves under the earth. Or in some stories, you might find an elven castle at the bottom of a lake. Or after you'd quested for leagues upon leagues through a wild forest. Or you'd find the elves in a mountain cavern, deep underground. Note that our peasant visitor didn't drink from this cup. Why is that? Well, generally, folklore held that if you did find yourself with the elves in their lands, if you ate from their food, you would be trapped there. You'd want to be careful if you went to a feast with the elves. And this brings us to Walter Mapp. Mapp was a member of the court of King Henry II of England and wrote a book called De Nugis Curialium, which roughly translates as On the Trifles of the Court. The man's a raconteur, and so he tells all sorts of stories in the vein of, hey, I heard this great story. It's great and I'd highly recommend giving it a read on your own. In this collection of stories, Map gives us an account of a King Herla, who received an invite to a wedding feast from a king who had ridden into his court, appearing as a short-statured man riding a goat. With this short-statured man were attendants bearing great wealth and goods of exceeding price. King Herla and his entourage followed their guide to this wedding feast, reached through a, reached through the mouth of a cave in the side of a cliff. They traveled to a cavern, where these short-statured people feasted for it seemed a night in the lamplit halls beneath the earth. At day's dawning, Herla and his entourage returned to the surface of the earth, but the elven king had given them a dog, and told him to carry it, and that they couldn't dismount from their horses until they'd seen the dog itself dismount. Notice the folkloric element of the prohibition. Well, King Herla went riding out, and, after returning to the surface of the earth, he spoke to someone. But he found out that he could not understand her language. For while Herla thought that he'd only been at the feast for a night, Centuries had passed in the world above. One of his men got off the horse and immediately aged, died, and crumbled into dust. And so, until that dog they carried would leap to the earth, Herla and his men were doomed to wander the night as the Wild Hunt. And if you're curious about other medieval legends of the Wild Hunt, I'd recommend you go to the Overly Sarcastic Productions YouTube channel and go to their episode on the Wild Hunt. You won't regret it. So we've got elves that exist fundamentally disconnected in space and time. Notice also that the elves have a kingdom that is somewhere, well, else. And that somewhere else is sort of unstuck in time. It was a place that you could visit. But that returning from might be a very dicey proposition indeed. And this is where we get the myth of the changeling, circling back to those peasants discussed by Etienne de Bourbon. Medieval folklore had stories that sometimes the elves would snatch a baby from its cradle and in its place leave an elvish imposter. The child would have been taken away to that inaccessible fairyland, the land of the elves. And you'd know the replacement child was elvish because its behavior was somewhat, well, off, and that's because elves themselves were uncanny, sort of, well, not quite right. They were, well, almost human. So let's talk about what precisely these almost humans looked like. You see two sorts of descriptions. One description is of the elves as short, diminutive creatures. This description survives on down to the present and our stories of Tinkerbell and Santa's elves. It's what we think of with images of delicate late Victorian stories of fairies, tiny winged creatures. But you also had what C.S. Lewis called the High Elves. These are beings that look human, only more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. Not only more beautiful, but all told, more, well, splendid. There's a story by Marie de France of King Arthur's knight Lonval and his elven lover that I'm now going to discuss here. Sir Lonval's first encounter with this elvish woman comes when riding through the countryside. He encounters two young women more beautiful than anything you'd seen. They lead him to a pavilion of silk whose central pole was surmounted by a golden eagle. This pavilion was more lavishly furnished than the wealthiest monarch might outfit. Within the pavilion, Sir Lonval encounters a beautiful woman clad only in her shift. These bedclothes are, and I quote, worth more than a castle. Note the association of elvish majesty with material splendor. What happens next in the story? Well, After professing her love to Lanval, and I shall quote the poem here, she gave him her love and her body. They're lovers, and she offers both unlimited sex and unlimited wealth. And I suspect that Marie de France knew her audience when writing this story. But of course, there's a prohibition here. Lanval can't tell anybody that he has a lover. Later on in this story, Guinevere tries to seduce him, because of course she does, and when he turns her down, she says that he must have no interest in women, but instead want, and I quote, fine-looking boys, end quote. And Lanval responds to her that, no, he's not gay, he's just got an elven lover. But after that happens... Guinevere accuses him of attempted rape and then the fairy lover doesn't show up when summoned because, of course, Sir Lanvaal had violated the prohibition and spoken of her. Eventually, he goes to trial before King Arthur's court. At the last minute, though, the elven lady with her attendants shows up and she takes Lanvaal off to Avalon, the land of the elves, where they presumably live happily ever after. What does the story of Lonval show us? Well, it shows us that elves were associated with a lusty sexuality. Sexual encounters between men and elves were a frequent occurrence, not only in medieval literature, but in medieval folklore. The Lusignans... Powerful French nobles, whose families included crusader kings, claimed that their founder had been married to the water elf Melusine. Walter Mapp tells us of Edric the Wild, wandering by night in a forest, when he chanced upon a hall where elves were gathered in a feast. He saw a most beautiful elven woman and snatched her away and carried her off to be his bride. Now I'll point to something that both of these women have in common and a feature that they show us of belief in elves. Melazine, we're told, told her husband that he could never gaze upon her in her bath. Now, since we're in the realm of folklore, we know that prohibitions only exist to be broken. So eventually, his curiosity gets the better of him. He walks in on her and sees that she has a fish tail. and when she sees that he has walked in on her, she sprouts wings and flies away, never to be seen again. Edric and his wife one day get into a quarrel, and when he mocks her, she simply vanishes, never to be seen again. One thing about the elves is that even beings as substantial as the high elves could nevertheless slip in and out of reality. This was also true of Lanval's elvish lover, who would suddenly appear when you least expected her, but was somehow, well, removed. And even at the end of the story, Lonval and his lover vanish off to that mysterious realm of the elves, named here and elsewhere as Avalon. But what does it mean to get taken away by the elves to some place that you'll never be seen again? This leads us to another question. What were the elves? Or at least, what did medieval people think they were? Well, it turns out that different people had different opinions on that matter. One explanation was that elves were another rational species that lived on the earth, sharing it with humans and the angels. Now that's interesting, but the other two options are what I find really fascinating. So you remember that we read in the book of Revelation the dragon, representing Satan, sweeps a third of the stars from heaven, and that was generally held to show that a third of the angels had fallen. Well, there were some who suggested that when Lucifer had led a third of the angels into rebellion against God, there were those angels who remained loyal to God and fought alongside St. Michael. But then there were other angels who sided with neither God nor the devil, And so as punishment, these angels were banished from heaven to the earth. Perhaps in time, these neutral angels might be welcomed back into the fold. The thing is, in most medieval accounts of elves saying that they're the neutral angels, the truth is usually more sinister. You see, in accounts written by churchmen, It turns out that the elves who say that they're neutral angels and relatively benign are actually lying. It turns out in these accounts that they're demons in disguise. And this was the most common explanation that learned churchmen had of what the elves actually were. Demons in disguise. Why do so many accounts of elves have human elf sex? Well, That's actually accounts of what some churchmen called succubi, demons who take the appearance of women and have sex with men. Yes, learned churchmen believed that demons could have sex with humans by fabricating a body from various elements like the air. Some even speculated that in female form, they'd keep the semen that was deposited into them and then reuse it when having sex with a human woman in a male form. I don't know, man. You're going to have to take it up with medieval churchmen. But the notion of the elf as a demon in disguise comes up frequently in clerical literature. In Exempla, those stories that preachers told to liven up sermons or illustrate a point, in the later Middle Ages we often encounter elves or beings that clearly have elven features that turn out to actually be demons. So Thomas de Canterbury, tells us a story that one of his fellow Dominican friars had heard of a heretic who told him that he could show this friar Christ and Mary here and on earth. This heretic led the friar into a cave in a mountain in which a king and a queen sat shining in splendor. But the friar had brought along a consecrated host that is a communion wafer and when he brought out this bread that was actually the body of Christ, the demonic illusion vanished. The image of the impostor Christ and Mary here, of course, draws heavily on the image of the elven king and queen beneath a mountain. A fourteenth century exemplum tells us of a friar who encountered a peasant in Ireland under a compulsion by demons to do whatever they commanded, a compulsion that folklorists would recognize as a Gace. A gaze is essentially a random compulsion. So the Irish hero, Kukulin, was under a gase never to eat dog meat. But he was also under a gase to eat whatever a woman offered to him. And so, of course, the Morrigan, a warrior queen, took advantage of this by offering the flesh of dogs. And so, when he was caught by twin Gesa, that's gase, he was doomed. But of course, in the exemplum I mention, this peasant who was under a compulsion had that compulsion broken by a friar. And remember how that demon with elvish characteristics masquerading as Christ and Mary was under the earth? Remember how that peasant had met elves in a barrow? And remember how those who go to the land of the elves never return? Well. All of this brings us to the association of elves with the dead. The Arthurian myth, as it eventually developed, told of Arthur having been taken away to Avalon, the land of the elves, rather than dying. Or, was Avalon some post-mortem location? After all, you often had myths of a king who hadn't died but was rather taken to a place beneath a mountain in a cave, where he would wait in a state that wasn't quite death, but wasn't quite life, perhaps to someday return. And sometimes churchmen would talk about Arthur being under a mountain. But rather than the mysterious realm of Avalon, King Arthur was said to be under Mount Etna. And Mount Etna in Sicily was the volcano often identified as an opening to hell. And there are also stories like an anonymous Irish poem from around 1200 where a man throws a stone at a swan, but when he hits it, it turns into a woman. When this woman that he has thrown the rock at regains consciousness, she says that she was at the point of death, but then snatched away by the elves. He returns her to her family, and they are shocked to discover she's alive since they thought they'd buried her. And this brings us back to Walter Mapp. Map tells us of a certain knight whose wife had died. But then he came across mysterious dancers at night. You'll, of course, recognize the elves by this point. And among these dancers he saw his supposedly deceased wife. He snatched her away from the dancers, carried her back home, and then they led a long and happy life. Indeed, their descendants were known as the Sons of the Dead Woman. So what were elves? Were they actually the dead? Medieval churchmen, of course, strenuously opposed such a belief. But such beliefs crept into medieval religious thought and practice. By the 12th century, medieval churchmen had articulated a doctrine of purgatory. The idea was that if you'd had your mortal sins forgiven in confession... But when you died, you hadn't done your penance, that is, your regimen of self-denial to morally reorient yourself, you'd go to purgatory, a place of suffering where you would finish your penance before heaven. But stories of purgatory ended up getting weird. So you'd see the story of a monastery in Ireland that had a doorway to purgatory in its basement. Or the story of a knight who visits purgatory bodily while still alive, and then comes back. And in these tales, Purgatory feels an awful lot like fairyland, being located in a strange sort of place that is no place. So that's a little bit about medieval beliefs about elves. I'll have many subsequent episodes about the elves, but for now we'll bring it to a close. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.